0: Good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them to Romans chapter 12? Much of our understanding of the Bible probably is flavoured, I think, by the environment we read it in. Our society, our culture places an enormous amount of emphasis on the individual. And as such, we can soon read the Bible as being primarily a personal letter between God and ourselves. But it isn't. The Bible is God's self-revelation to a people, a community. The gospel is good news not only for you as an individual, but also for us corporately. And I think that the book of Romans is arguably the most developed, maybe, explanation of the gospel of grace that you will find in the New Testament. For 11 chapters, hopefully you're in Romans 12 by now, for 11 chapters, Paul has carefully turned this, you can think of it as a gem, a gem of grace, and he's put it under the beam of God's righteousness... And he's shown us the the rainbow of hope that it throws. And then taking all that richness from chapters 1 through 11, Paul begins to chart a pathway forward, showing us how that gospel transforms a people to carry that good news out into the world. Romans 12 is that turning point. So over the next nine weeks, our plan is to walk with Paul step by step through this significant moment in the book of Romans. Nine weeks in one chapter. Okay, I've been excited looking forward to this preaching series. With God's help though, not simply because we're going to slow down in the word... But with God's help, by his spirit, we will begin to reorder our community by the priorities of grace that we will discover in this chapter. Maybe we will begin to reform our direction as a community of disciples who are born by the spirit, shaped by the word and sent out with the gospel. But we will desperately need God's help. So let's pray and ask for it. Father, you are a God who loves to speak and reveal yourself to your people, and you have done that through your word. Specifically today and over the next nine weeks, we want to slow down and look carefully at what you have said through this portion of your letter. Lord, help us to be a community shaped by the gospel and who carries the gospel. We need your help, Lord. Holy Spirit, reveal the truth of the Father's voice through the word as we look to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, before we dive too far into Romans chapter 12, let's go back a bit and just pick up a bit of the background of this entire book, where it fits into the timeline of the development of the church throughout the first century. And so I've got a bit of a timeline. I like timelines. I'm a visual person. So just so that you know where the book of Romans fits into the story of the first century and the development of the church, we have Paul's first missionary journey around about AD 46, 47 or so. And then as you move through the book of Acts, you would come across Paul's second missionary journey in about A.D. 49. And then a little bit later, you get to his third missionary journey, which happened around A.D. 52 or somewhere in that period. And somewhere in that third missionary journey, they think Paul writes the book of Romans, A.D. 55, somewhere around AD 55 to AD 58, somewhere in that ballpark, and then eventually he visits Rome in AD 60, okay, so if you're a bit of a time person, you like timelines, there it is. If you're a map person, let's go and have a look at a bit of a map, and you will see that this era, this part of the world, you can go there today, Paul wrote this letter, the book of Romans, from the city of Corinth. During his third missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts. And it's largely addressed to a church or a group of churches who were in Rome. Paul, we would discover if you read this letter, hasn't been to Rome yet. But it's his desire to go there and visit these Christians. It would seem by the way that he addresses them. The church in Rome is largely a Gentile church, but probably with some Jews who were mixed in with it, okay. So there's a little bit of big picture background about where the book of Romans fits, but we are particularly inter- interested in Romans chapter 12. And because we're going to take nine weeks to move through this chapter, today we're just going to do one verse. All right. So why don't you grab your Bibles? I want you to, as we read it. I first learnt this verse memorized in the King James Version. I beseech thee, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. All right, King James Version, old school. school. ESV, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Have you found it in your Bible yet? All right, stand up. Stand up, if you can. The Bible that we will particularly, I would say the translation that we'll particularly work from in the next nine weeks, um, Christian Standard Bible says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship this is god's word it has power why don't you take a seat it's pretty short verse isn't it you might be tempted to think it doesn't say too much you'd be mistaken to truly do this single verse justice i I honestly think we could preach 200 sermons alone just on the word therefore. But instead, we we, we will work our way through this verse and notice some of the key words and phrases that are in it and then consider how God is speaking to us through them. And for sake of ease of language, I've decided to stick mainly with the Christian Standard Bible, but I'll highlight the key words for you on the screen so that you can follow along in whichever translation you prefer using. So let's go to that word, therefore. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore. Therefore. Who knows one of my favorite sayings? I've said it a lot of times. If you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. All right? As I mentioned at the beginning, chapter 12 marks a significant Turning point in this letter. As you read through the book of Romans, as you get to chapter 12, a significant change happens in what Paul's talking about and even the tone of how he speaks. In that single word, therefore, Paul wraps up the entirety of the first 11 chapters, compresses them down to a single word. And asks us to consider what life would look like. What a life would look like that grasps and embraces the righteousness of God. Now we could easily preach 200 verses. 200 sermons out of the first 11 chapters. You could spend the rest of your life preaching and listening and reading and studying. About the first 11 chapters, but instead let me give you a summary of chapters 1 through 11 on a single slide. Here's an outline of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Chapters 1, 1 through 17 the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. Paul introduces the idea of this gospel, this good news that we have received and heard and that we have been given to share and it is about the revelation of God's righteousness. Chapter 1 verses 18 through to about chapter 3 verse 20, you get God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. It is heavy reading. If you read through the early chapters of Romans, it is depressing. Not only because of what we see out there, but because it soon starts to reveal what's in here. God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. Chapter 3 verse 21 down to chapter 4 verse 25, you see the saving righteousness of God. It begins with bad news, Romans. We are sinners. And it's so that we can grasp the significance of the good news, that there is salvation in the righteousness of God. Chapter 5 verse 1 down to verses chapter 8 verse 39 is a hope that we have as a result of righteousness by faith, not works. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 36. God's righteousness to Israel and the Gentiles. And then we have chapter 12. This section would go through all the way through chapter 15. In fact, at the end of this nine-week series, the last sermon that we will do in the series is going to jump out of chapter 12 a bit and, and start to branch out into chapters 13, 14, and 15 just a little bit. God's righteousness. God's righteousness in everyday life. And then in 15 down to 16, we see the extension of God's righteousness through Paul's mission. And then a final summary of the God's righteousness in the closing verses of this book. The therefore captures everything that's happened between 1 and 11, and it wraps it all up, and it says to us, because all of that is true, because of all the, the righteousness of God against, the wrath of His towards sinners, the hope that we have in righteousness that comes through faith, all of that wrapped up together. He says, therefore, because all of that is true, this is what I want you to do now. There's the therefore. All right. Let's have a look at the next key phrase. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God... In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Right? The therefore is closely connected to this phrase. The therefore asks us to look back, and it said, "Listen, chapters one through eleven, all of that is true. I want you to keep that in mind." And then he says, "In view of the mercies of God, in as much as Paul wants us to focus on the reality." that the gospel of God's grace towards us in Christ is, from the very beginning to the very end, a testimony of his mercy towards us. As Paul moves towards the commands of the Christian life, and we're going to get there soon, there's commands here. He labors at keeping in, in full view... God's mercy. It's a bit like when you're framing up a shot on your camera and it's like, what is in the viewfinder? You need to frame your image up well. Paul's asking us to keep God's mercy front and center in our viewfinder as we start to talk about the practical implications of the gospel. We are meant to be a people who marvel at the mercy of God. We haven't got to what Paul wants us to do yet. We haven't got to the command yet. But this turning point in the letter shows us that something significant is happening. You see, up until this point, Paul has largely been concerned with gospel doctrine. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are about truths, truths about mankind. Truths about the nature of God, what the law is and how it operates, what righteousness is and where it can be found. It's about doctrine, about truth, about knowledge. Paul has dived deep into the sovereign nature of God. The trustworthiness of his promises, the dependability of his word and his covenants. Paul has been primarily dealing with, and I'll teach you a big word here, gospel indicatives. All right? Gospel indicatives. Things that are true. Things that are relate to knowledge, things that we must grasp, realities about God. But now he's going to turn his intent his attention to gospel imperatives okay so in the first 11 chapters you see these gospel indicatives in verses uh, chapter 12 onwards we see gospel imperatives which mean romans is made up of gospel realities or gospel truths and gospel implications how does that gospel affect us in other words what this really means is true gospel doctrine Truth about God cannot be separated from a true gospel lifestyle. The doctrines of God should lead us to delight in God. We should know about God and it should lead us to worship God. What we know about him to be true should affect the way that we live. Or maybe we could say it like this. Gospel truth produces a gospel culture, or it should. Too often, I think, some of us, including myself, quite happy to finish at the end of chapter 11, we know a lot about God, but how much has God and the gospel shaped the way that that affects everyday life? Alright let's get to the command This is the bit where we go 12 verse 1 God's mercies Living sacrifice Easy right? Holy and pleasing to God this is your true worship. Highlighted part. I'm going to begin by the word urge. Just have a look at it there. Urge. In the King James it says, I beseech, beseech ye therefore, brethren. Right at the beginning of the, the verse. Even though we don't use that word very much anymore, I actually like the King James version rendering of that word. Beseech. We don't. Use it a lot in everyday language. I don't say to my kids, "I beseech you, clean up." A tone, offer bodies. This is not a sort of, I'm going to tell my testimony, I'm going to go, oh, I gave myself over to God. When Matt shared last week, thanks Matt for that, it's been on my mind all week. He said, it's no little thing to make Jesus the Lord of your life. This is what Paul's talking about. This is not some theoretical, spiritual endeavor that one day you said, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Jesus Wants everything. The Lord Jesus Christ. That term, Lord, it's not his first name. It's a title. Lord means the one who reigns. The one who rules. The one who has authority. For you to make the Lord, the Lord of your life, means that we submit to it. I urge you. I urge beseech you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies everything about you physically emotionally your aspirations your goals everything that makes you you present it to God As a living sacrifice. This may be the part that some find too confronting or maybe just confusing. You see, Paul pulls together two words here that normally we would never associate with each other. Living. Sacrifice. Puts them together. This is at the heart of Paul's beseeching, his urging. This is the key to our response to God's mercy. I want to summarize the the one point of this entire sermon. If you need to check out, do it after this sentence. The gospel forms a community of worshippers who live by daily dying. The gospel forms a community of worshippers who live by daily dying. That's what this verse is about. It can't be overstated. It's impossible to make too much of this. It's the central concept to understanding how we should live and respond to God's righteousness given to us in Christ through faith. But what does it mean? What does it mean, this living sacrifice? Well, probably the easy one for us to jump to is the term sacrifice there. Mostly, as soon as Paul uses this word, we would probably be starting to come to mind immediately this overwhelming history of the sacrificial system of Israel. From the beginning of time, even from Eden, one living thing had to die in the place of another. When Adam and Eve insufficiently attempted to cover their shame when they were exposed by sin God clothed them with the skins of what? an animal something had to die in order to cover their shame Abel was murdered by his brother because his sacrifice from the herds was acceptable to God when Cain's wasn't, Isaac was spared death as a ram was given to take his place. A lamb dies for every firstborn son in Egypt so that the angel of death would pass over them the night that God swept through the land in terrible judgment. Eventually, the sacrificial system was organized and ordained by God in Israel's daily worship. And you can't read the pages of the Old Testament without being confronted with the tide of blood that has stained all of them. Whatever we might conclude by Paul's use of the word here, sacrifice, at the very least, we should see that it involves a type of death. but what type of sacrifice is it? I think we need to begin to answer that question by seeing maybe what type of sacrifice it isn't. There are lots of types of sacrifices in the Bible. One we are very familiar with are the, the, the idea of the atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice which is offered in payment for sin or as a covering for sin. The sacrifice that Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12, is not an atoning sacrifice. Why? Because that's already been accomplished. It does not need to be repeated. So speaking of Jesus, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 2, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. He's talking about Jesus. Or John says in his letters, 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the whole world's. Or 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul is not asking you to offer your bodies as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. Or as some type of penance to prove to God how sorry you are for the things that you've done. Firstly, we're unable to offer that type of sacrifice. You don't have what it takes. Neither do I. That's the point of the gospel. We needed a rescuer. It couldn't be us. That type of sacrifice has to be spotless. Remember the spotless, unblemished lamb that was required? Anyone here spotless? Unblemished? No. We needed someone outside of ourselves. Secondly, we're not required to offer ourselves in this type of sacrifice because, believe it or not, there's no more sin to pay for hard for us to wrap our heads around that because we know our own lives. But Jesus has already paid that debt. He has carried the punishment for your sin. He has fully absorbed the cup of God's wrath that we deserved. It's already done. It's already finished. The sacrifice does not need to be repeated. So the sacrifice that Paul talks about, it's not atonement. So what is it? Well, he calls it a living sacrifice, which is confusing, right? So maybe we better let Paul help us understand what he means by it. We've already read from Romans chapter 6, but maybe you could go back and find it. Romans chapter 6, just a few of those verses. Romans 6, verse 6, have a look at it. Paul says earlier in the book, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Notice the dying and the living terminology that Paul uses here. Verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This living death is by association. This is about a daily identification with Christ that is so inherently tied up with him that we are absorbed into his very being. Or as Paul says elsewhere, we are in Christ. Not only his life, but also his death. To see this living death As a snapshot, we can turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians 2 and 20. Some of you might know this verse. I have been what? Crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But there's no full stop there. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life... That I now live in the body. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or maybe you should reconsider the words of Jesus. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Then he said to all of them. If anyone wants to follow after me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross isn't an inconvenience that needs to be endured in your life. The cross was an instrument of torture and death. When Jesus asks us to deny ourselves daily, to daily take up our cross, he's inviting us to daily die. A guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a theologian who was martyred for his faith by the Nazis. He wrote a short book, titled The Cost of Discipleship, which has been translated to English. In it, he wrote these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies... A living Sacrifice Holy and pleasing Let's take our next key phrase I feel as though I need to stress The significance of the point I made earlier And to do so I want to highlight how important it is That we get this holy and pleasing Bit right in our thinking You see I think we're too often Tempted to think that in order to be a living sacrifice, you must first be holy and pleasing. We look at our lives and we respond with one of two options. One, we see all our failures and the countless ways that we've fallen short And we conclude that we will never be holy or pleasing to God. So we refuse to lay our lives down before him. I'm not worthy. Or two. We work our backsides off. Trying to prove ourselves to God to make ourselves holy and pleasing. And both of those approaches are way off target. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices in view of God's mercy. Amen. Not to gain it. We, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in response to God's mercy. It is already there. God's mercy has been poured out in abundance in his grace towards us. And what is our proper response in view of God's mercy? You don't have to earn it. God already knows you're not worthy of it. That's the point of mercy. You are receiving something you don't deserve. That's mercy. The right response to the gospel is to daily surrender to it. The the gospel is not something that we look back on and say, I remember a day when I was 12 years old, when I heard someone explain to me the good news of Jesus and I, I was really moved by it and I prayed a prayer and that was the day that I responded to the gospel and then it has of no value to me anymore. No, the gospel is of value to us every day. We can't live without it. From the day that you surrendered to it first and every day since that we re-surrender to it, re-surrender to it. The right response to the gospel is a daily surrender, a daily dying. A surrendered life is a set apart life. And it truly makes the heart of God sing in delight. It is holy and it is pleasing when daily we die to ourselves, and daily we embrace the truth of the gospel. Let's start to wrap things up. Let's remind ourselves of our text again. Romans 12 and 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship? Remember what I said the main point of this sermon was? The gospel forms a community of worshipers who live by daily dying. Responding to the gospel of God's grace. His daily mercy towards us by laying our lives down at the altar of His will truly is what is at the heart of worship. 11 o'clock. Guess what? Worship doesn't end in two minutes' time. That's being optimistic. Maybe five minutes. Worship doesn't finish when we walk out the door. Or does it? It shouldn't. But it can. You've heard us say so many times, church is more than this building. It's not less than this building. But it is more than it. It's not less than singing when we come together. God commands us as his people gather together, sing. Sing the praises and exalt the worth of your God. Read the Bible together. Pray together. That's all part of worship. But worship doesn't finish when you walk out the door. Because a true life of worship is a life of a community of God's people, whether they are gathered or whether they are scattered, who live by daily dying. That is true worship. That's saying to your God that my life is safe in your hands. And so I give up myself to you again and again and again. There was a time when Jesus was traveling between the south of the country and the north of the country. And he stopped in an area of the country where lots of Jewish people didn't like to go. The region of samaria and he was hungry and he was thirsty and he stopped beside a well his disciples decided to go into town and get jesus something to eat i want to look after him and while jesus was resting in the shade he noticed that there was a woman from that town coming out in the heat of the day to get water you can read about it in john chapter four a fascinating conversation starts jesus Revealing something about himself that he is living water from whom you will never thirst again. And she, of course, is confronted by the conversation and in fact confronted by the fact that Jesus knew so much about her life. And she starts to have a religious conversation about what worship's really about. Oh, you Jews think that you have to worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans think that we can worship in this place And Jesus says something fascinating. He says an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. you realize that the father wants your worship he wants it he desires it he's urging you even he is beseeching you this morning this is what true worship is it's not about whether you worship in that place or in this place even he says this is what true worship is the father is searching for it he wants it what's true worship Well, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your true worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting us in your word. And Lord, our desire is to be a community of worshippers who live by daily dying. You deserve true worship. And we long to give it to you, so help us, we pray. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to follow Jesus. To live by daily dying. Help us, we pray. In his name, amen.